Welcome to the Awaken Podcast. At Awaken Church, we are passionate about wrestling with and being unraveled by the Christian scriptures. Ideally, we do this together around the table in the neighborhood of Bones. As we see it, Jesus has invited all of us to encounter him in a diverse community and participate with him in a mission of loving our neighbors. Welcome back to the Awaken podcast. It has been a little while. Uh, I'm excited to be back and to be diving into a brand new series um, that we're going to release once a week until the end of the summer. We are going to be doing a deep dive on the book of Ephesians. And I keep saying we, even though it's quite often just me on the podcast, because with me for this series and until the end of the year is this really awesome guy named Dallas, who is a pastoral intern at Awaken and future pastor. So I love scripture probably as much as I do at least, and is very fun to talk to. Him and I have hung out a few times in the last couple months, and we accidentally use up like three hours just talking about scripture. And it's like, hey, let's record a podcast together on Ephesians and basically just invite people to listen to you and I getting passionate about this text that we love so much. And so uh, this is Dallas. Hi, Dallas. Hello. (laughs) Uh, You'll hear his voice a lot more in the next uh, little bit in this episode. Um, And also, I think Dallas is going to take over editing the podcast. So I think that will be an upgrade for all of us. We shall see. Uh, So what Dallas and I have decided for the rest of this summer is to do, to pick a a short uh, book in the Bible for the summer, and we've chosen the letter uh, to the Ephesians. Um, It has six chapters, and it's actually a really beautiful book. I read through all of Paul's epistles uh, a few weeks ago, trying to decide like what, what would really meet Awaken, where Awaken is at. And the themes in Ephesians, I think, are really profound for this community, Um, this community that's kind of trying to rebuild after COVID, trying to learn how to be together again and like reestablish the sense of belonging and community, um, especially now that we can be in person and be in each other's homes. Um, So Ephesians is probably the perfect text uh, for us to meditate on and explore. Uh, But... Some people, maybe it's been a while since you were reading the Bible every day or kind of thinking about the Bible in terms of like like studying it. So really quick, I think, intro, refresher, reminder. Um, Paul's letters are a unique section in Scripture. Paul was not a systematic theologian. Uh, Paul's very much a missionary. He's traveling around. He, he's planting churches. And for the majority of Paul's letters, there's 13 in the New Testament. Um, the sense we get is that he knows the community very well. And so he's writing letters that he knows are directly relevant to, to the situation that each church is in. So he's not sitting down in a library with a big stack of books thinking, what do Christians for all time need to know about? Um, no, he, he gets a letter from a church. He hears about like a crisis or some, a problem in the community, and he's writing directly to that situation. So we're kind of only getting one side of the conversation. Um, but I love it very much because you can see Paul emphasize different things in different letters. My theory is that he's a healthy three, uh, but the Enneagram's going out of style, so that might not be as relevant when you're listening to this podcast. Um, and so when I grew up, the book, uh, the New Testament especially, was essentially just a grab bag of quotes. Um, I could, I knew a bunch of Paul's quotes by heart. 
Um, all of us probably somewhere in our house or in our parents' house have a Paul quote. It's a fridge magnet. It might be embroidered on a tea towel, maybe a little plaque when you open the door. Maybe someone has a tattoo, Philippians 4.13. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. A lot of athletes have that etched on their sneakers. Can shoot hoops. I know a pastor who has that tattooed on their arm. Yeah, Philippi- or, or love is patient, uh, love is kind. Oh, yeah. I know 413. I know someone who has 413. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, and so it's like, do you know anything else from Ephesians? Uh, oh, rejoice always. Uh, like there's a bunch of quotes. And so it's like a whole new ballgame to see the whole letter of, of Paul to the Ephesians, like the unified message, the story, his heart for this particular community, his pastoral heart for this community. He didn't want it to be like, here's a collection of quotes, pick one and embroider it on a tea towel. So that's going to be our approach to this is hopefully there will be five or six episodes. And at the end, you'll feel like you are a member of the community in Ephesus and you know, uh, you'll feel a sense of belonging there and you'll hear Paul's heart for you. So that's the dream. Um, Paul also uh, gave up a lot of privilege and power that he had. He's a Roman citizen. He was a Pharisee. um, He's a man. And he had a, that gave him a lot of privilege, a lot of power, access to a lot of different kind of communities. And yet when, he is, when his life took a major 180 to follow Jesus, he had to give up all that privilege. Um, he gave up the privilege that being a Roman citizen gained him. He gave up the privilege being a Pharisee. Like he ended up being rejected by the Romans to the point of execution, rejected by the Pharisees. Um, and he kind of the status that being a man gave him. You see passages like in Galatians and other ways where he works with a lot of women and elevates a lot of women when the world that he came from before would have had no problem kind of silencing and overlooking women. So Paul's story is really powerful. He gave up a lot and he uh, just has a deep love for outsiders. Um, The world that he grew up in had a really strong line between insiders and outsiders. There's people who clearly don't fit and don't belong in the community. Um, so the, the terms for insider and outsider in his world would be Jews and Gentiles. Uh, and he saw himself very much as a missionary to the Gentiles, meaning that making a space for belonging and proclaiming the good news that there's a space for them at Jesus's table and that they don't have to fully assimilate and become Jewish, nor do they have to segregate and have their own separate church down the street, but that there would be a joining of the two groups into one new family and new community. And so it's this profound vision. His imagination for Christian unity is is exactly what I need to hear, what I think Awaken needs to hear, and what our world desperately needs to see, a church with an imagination for unity and community. So I'm a fan of Paul, but that has taken me some work. <laughs> um, and then Paul's writing this letter to the city called Ephesus, which is neat. You can actually still travel and go visit it today. And the ruins that are there are quite beautifully preserved. Um, and the only, the only things I know that are like super relevant for this letter and this series in particular is that Ephesus is the third biggest city in the Roman Empire. Um, Athens and... Wasn't it Rome? Oh, pfft. yeah, the capital city. Yep, Athens and Rome are the other... To, um, oh, no, not Athens. Athens is... I thought wow. it was Athens. It's Alexandria. Oh. Roman Alexandria is what I have. We're the two biggest after um, Ephesus. And what's what's really profound about Ephesus is that 
there's a huge temple to the goddess Artemis. Um, the Roman name for Artemis is Diana in the city of Ephesus. And it's one of the seven ancient wonders of the world, or sorry, seven wonders of the ancient world. Um, it was um, ancient poets said it was the most beautiful thing the sun had ever shone upon. Like the pray, this temple was just massive. Um, the worship, the cult around uh, worshiping the goddess Artemis. Um, Artemis, like there's a whole beautiful mythology around Artemis uh, was born. Her twin brother is Apollo or Mars in Roman, uh, the Roman pantheon. And Artemis is born first. And then she helps her mother birth Apollos, but her mother dies. And so she is very angry that women would get pregnant and risk death. And so the temple of Artemis essentially was like a medical center where women would go to give birth. And the priestesses that worked at that temple would help women give birth but there was a fear that you would die in childbirth in the ancient world so you'd have to make a lot of sacrifices to artemis in hopes that you would live and it was a really important part and influenced ephesian culture a lot and there's also a really big temple to the to caesar gaius uh he who was deified after death and believed to be a god and he would have been the caesar in power just before jesus was born um and so emperor worship empire worship is an important thing to know about that city um, and then is there anything Dallas you'd add about the city of Ephesus? One thing I did pick up and when I was reading was that em Ephesus, not emphasis, Ephesus was also, um, and correct me if I'm wrong, but it was one of the provincial capitals of the senatorial province of Asia. That's what I read. Mm -hmm. Um, and so the proconsul and like political figures had significant power in the lives of the Ephesians. So there was there was like Artemis worship and stuff like that, but it was also government authority had a lot of power over people. Um, and so when like you have guys like Paul coming in, preaching this gospel message, that's like, no, Jesus is, is Lord over all. And like Jesus is King. Um, that drew some people away from, I don't know, obeying like government authority. So it was like, it was also, it was a religious thing, but it was also like a political issue that he was, he was there and he was, uh, and Paul was preaching this type of message. I'm really glad you added that because I feel like as Christians in the West, we miss out so much on the political undertones of Paul's writing. But we know that Paul was eventually executed by the state. Um, and you didn't get executed by the state for just like being too nice to poor people. Um, you got executed by the state for challenging the political powers and disrupting the political system or disrupting uh, the economy. And so I think we will see a lot of that in the book uh, Paul's letter to the Ephesians, and hopefully Dallas and I will pull some of that out, that out for you all. Um, that's great. And then what we know about the actual people who made up the church in Ephesus is uh, that most likely the majority of the community was Gentile, so outsiders formerly. Uh, some would say it was likely a wealthy community just because it was a part of Ephesus, which was a wealthy city. Um, but we can't say for sure. There likely could have been very poor people in the church and, and rich because rich people didn't often follow the way of Jesus in the first century. Um, and poor people very much did. Paul often introduces himself as a slave, which is not a, a honorable uh, lot in life. And it's an honor-shame culture. So not a lot of people give up their honor to follow like a new way of life. But people who already don't have honor... Uh, are very excited about a way of life that suggests that there is honor in being lowly. And so we're not, we're not sure much about the community, except that they were most likely all Gentiles. And then a few names you've maybe heard before are 
part of the Ephesus community. So Timothy, um, Timothy, young Timothy is a leader in the church in Ephesus. So the, the books of the Bible, first and second Timothy were also addressed to the Ephesian community or were addressed, addressed to Timothy, giving Timothy instructions for leading this community. So Ephesians and first and second Timothy should be read together. Um, a, a nerdy bit that's interesting to me especially is that Ephesians and First and Second Timothy are going to be the two places in the Bible where there's texts that aren't very um, friendly and hospitable to women <laughs> uh, at first glance, and they're written to the same context. And it has to do with the, the temple to Artemis, so there's reasons there that we'll unpack later on in this series. Uh, and then also uh, Priscilla and Aquila were probably in this community as well as Apollo. So there's some heavy hitters in this community and, and Paul deeply loves this community. And then last but not least, um, Paul's letter to the Ephesians was written by Paul while Paul was in prison. It's one of his prison letters. So I just want to encourage the listeners to imagine sitting in a jail cell in the ancient world, not a very pleasant place to be. And yet listen to how much joy you hear in Paul's voice and what, what is it that can give someone who's sitting in prison wondering if they're going to be executed or not? Uh, what gives them that much joy? And Ephesians is one of Paul's most joyful letters. I think First Thessalonians and Philippians are there too, but Ephesians is full of joy. So we're going to dive in and we're going to start by doing it exactly how we would in church. And Dallas is going to read to us Ephesians chapter 1. Uh, if you need to skip ahead 30 seconds in the podcast because you already have it memorized, that's fine. But He's going to read it, and then we're just going to get excited about what we're what we're seeing in that. So take it away, Dallas. Awesome. Yeah. Thanks for that beautiful setup of all the context. Um, I'm gonna I'm gonna be reading from the NRSV New Revised Standard Version. So if you are reading along, you know what uh, translation we are reading. Um, that's what Nikhil and I both have. But Ephesians chapter one, verse one begins like this: Paul an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus grace to you and peace from God, our father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, just as he chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless before him in love. He destined us for adoption as his children through Jesus Christ, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace that he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace that he lavished on us. With all wisdom and insight, he has made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure that he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to gather up all things in him, things in heaven and things all it disappeared on my screen and things on earth in Christ. We have also obtained an inheritance having been destined according to the purpose of him who accomplishes all things according to his counsel and will so that we who were the first to set our hope on Christ might live for the praise of his glory in him. You also, when you had, when you had heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and had believed in him, were marked with the seal of the promised Holy Spirit. This is the pledge of our inheritance toward redemption as God's own people to the praise of his glory. 
I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints. And for this reason, I do not cease to give thanks for you as I remember you in my prayers. I pray that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation as you come to know him, so that with the eyes of your heart enlightened, you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance among the saints, and what is the, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power for us, in, for us who believe according to the working of his great power. God put this power to work in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. And he has put all things under his feet and has made him the head over all things for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. The word of the Lord. Wow. Um, so there's so much here that's going on and it's so profound. Uh, Dallas, what is something kind of at the beginning of that text that stands out to you? What do you love? Yeah, well, the, one of the first things that I noticed through reading this and studying this is chapter one is kind of split up into like basically two parts or three parts. Like there's the intro at the beginning you have this middle section you closes with uh, basically like a prayer from Paul. But this middle section from like verse 3 to 14 begins by saying like, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Um, and so it's and what I, I realized about this is that it is Paul saying like, blessed be God, blessed is God. Um, and that stuck out to me because it's not traditional for at least for me or for, for our culture now, to bless God. We think of God blessing us, not us blessing him. So it seems like a bit more of an ancient tradition that's kind of going on here or something that's foreign to us. Um, so I just wanted to know your thoughts, like if there's anything on that um, or that first kind of line, because it seems kind of different for us. Yeah, uh, it's huge, actually. And it's something that a lot of um, us in the West aren't uh, familiar with is that um, in ancient Rome, okay, so first of all, it is kind of um, written in the same stream as like an ancient Jewish poem, um, kind of uh, bless the God who chose us, the covenant people, the family of Abraham. It, it wouldn't be so uncommon to use that kind of language in like ancient Judaism. Um, but I think more significantly, one thing that's really important to know about ancient Rome is the Caesar himself, uh, is, is Lord, is like a God. Like literally Caesar um, Gaius was deified as a God. And his son Augustus was called the son of God. And you can even find um, like coins from the ancient world during the reign of Caesar Augustus, who would have been the Caesar when Jesus was born. Um, the coins say son of God. And Caesar Augustus um, issued this decree called the Pax Romana or the Roman peace. And so another title for Caesar Augustus is Prince of Peace, Prince of Peace, son of God. And more importantly, the language that was used about the Roman Empire was that um, the Roman Empire is a family and we are all members, or we being Roman citizens, quote unquote, um, are members of the divine family and Caesar is our father. And, and the, the Latin name for this is the patra familias. He is the head of the household or the father of the household. 
He is the father of the fatherland. And this benevolent, loving father, if we obey him and we submit to his rules of the household, um, he would care for all of his children. We are his children and he would bestow gifts on us and he would keep us safe from you know, bad people out there who would try and harm his children. And, and this is really common language in the ancient world and in um, the Roman world especially. And it would have been very common at the beginning of big events, like if you went to the Colosseum, um, if you went to a, like an amphitheater, like what did the um, gladiators fight in? What's that called? Oh, um, I don't know. When I was reading, they just referred to it as like a theater or a, an like arena. An, yeah, like yeah. an arena. And there's like, let's say the the Caesar, the emperor is going to come to the arena and watch like a, a fight or a battle or some entertaining thing for them. Um, there would often be like a chant or something that the crowds would all have to say because the Caesar is present. I've heard before that um, there would be a chant that sounded like um, uh, one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Caesar is Lord. And everyone would say this and then they would say, hail Caesar or Caesar is Lord. Um, or they would say, bless the God and father. Uh, and and the, the Caesar would be called father. And it was a way of honoring him and essentially like pledging your allegiance to the father. And if this is like everyday language, if you, you wouldn't be like, oh, the father, Caesar, father, Caesar, you would just be like, uh, did you hear what father did? And it would be like an announcement about some big political thing or our father has died when the Caesar died or something like that. So if we know that about the Romans, it becomes extremely politically charged language when Jesus like teaches us to pray our father. And, and, and Paul here says, blessed be the God and father of Rome. No, of our Lord Jesus Christ. So I'm quoting now Ephesians 1 verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And then down in verse 5, he says, who's destined us for adoption as his children. So immediately, right off the bat, we know that the letter to the Ephesians, Paul is going to use the language around household and membership and belonging in a divine household, which will stand in stark contrast and almost like resistance to your place as a member of Caesar's household. So whose household are you a member of? Whose table do you eat at? Who's your father? And do you bless the father of the fatherland, Caesar, or do you bless the father of our Lord Jesus Christ? And then there's so much more I could say there that I won't because we get to do this five more times this summer. But uh, Jesus was crucified by the father of Rome. And in an honor and shame culture, being the emperor is a, obviously a seat of the greatest honor. Being crucified would be the seat of the greatest shame. So there's all these layers that he's like, blessed be the father of the Lord Jesus Christ. There's layers there about honor and shame and who who God's family is versus who Caesar's family is. So it's a long-winded answer, I'm sure. But Yeah, but the, it's interesting. I, when you said that um, that for them, like before like gladiators would fight, they would basically just like sing or chant to Caesar. And made me think of, I don't know if there's any correlation, maybe see what you think. But like now, if you watch like any sports game, before we play anything, you sing the national anthem, if not two national anthems, depending on the countries that are playing. Yep. Or even two, I thought of like, basically just like our allegiance to countries and our nationalities, which is like really strong in places like the US, where 
if you're proud to be American, even in Canada too, but also like predominantly I thought of um, like 1930s Germany, like on the rise of Hitler and Nazi Germany, there was like an intense love for German nationalism. Like if you were German, you were proud of that. And if like the more lines of pure German blood in your family, the better. And you would sing and you would like profess and chant that. Is that kind of like the same thing or am I just like pulling strands? No, I think it's exactly the same thing that a national anthem, you know, you, you like put your hand over your heart and you sing a song. And I mean, there's a lot I could say. There's a few Awakeners last summer that read The Christian Imagination by Willie Jennings. And there's a whole chapter devoted to um, some Christian hymns that early in like the 1700s, the language of colonialism is like blended into the hymn where like, you know, you could have a song that's a, an, a, a pledge to a nation, but yet is just full of language from the Bible and the hymns, like singing a song about from sea to shining sea, we shall reign. That's like, uh, I don't know the melody, but like a song about the American or like the British empire, but it's quoting the reign of God, but they end up, um, combining the reign of God to the reign of the British throne and the British monarchy. And uh, in the States, like even the pledging, I pledge allegiance, uh, one nation under God, like you add the nationalism to the sense of the God of the universe, it becomes uh, quite a dangerous tool and machine for like colonization. And uh, so absolutely a national anthem, especially if there's religious language in it, uh, to say that God has blessed us as a nation, uh, given us divine authority over this land. I think when we look at our history with nationalism and, and Nazi Germany is a great example, I think, yeah, I think it's it's a big thing of whose household are you a member of? And it can't be both. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and so that that's going to be the, the main theme that you see the whole book of Ephesians, the whole letter to the Ephesians is he's saying, who is your father and whose household are you a member of? And so right away in the very first few verses, he's already said, blessed be the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Um, he's talked about how our God has predestined us for belonging with him and our God has lavished us with gifts and our God has adopted us into his household as sons. Uh, this is all very familiar language to Roman citizens. Uh, in that section there, one thing I want to point out too that's cool is it, it begins right away with, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in the heavenly places just as he chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless before him in love down to verse six, he has freely bestowed on us in the beloved. Uh, there's this language of God giving us gifts, um, lavishing us with blessings, generously giving us every spiritual blessing. And it's really important to know that in Roman culture, it was very common for like wealthy Roman citizens to travel from town to town to town, and they would bestow gifts on people. And, and when, when, when someone in power gives you a gift, there's an expected reciprocity where you would give them honor. So you don't go to the movies on Friday nights. You might go down to like the town square or wherever like the center is, and there would be different kind of Roman wealthy people or like sort of quote unquote celebrities who would like speak to you and, and maybe teach you like a philosophical teaching of the day or something. And they would give gifts and you would be expected to listen and then like praise them and honor them. And it's like a reciprocal relationship. And so here he's saying, God is the one who's bestowed all these blessings on you and it's expected in return is honor and like 
a participation. It's it, it, this would be very common and familiar language for people who live in a in a major cosmopolitan center like Ephesus, especially, but to all of the Roman cities. So yeah, I feel excited now about this more than before we started going into this together. What what, what do you feel? What what what's standing out to you, or, or what else are you noticing in the text here? Uh, well, first of all, I didn't know that. Like I I picked up on the the language of there's a lot of blessing, and I think there's more stuff on it later on. It seems like Paul is kind of setting up Jesus Christ to be the one who is, like you said, giving these gifts, but he's also like the one who's actually, you know, giving them health and protecting them and watching over them. When, as now we know, like in the context, they, a lot of people in Ephesus would like make offerings to Artemis and and to gods and, and these other things that they thought could provide for them. And Paul is going like, no, it's uh they can't really do anything like even I know this is skipping way ahead, so I won't go too far in depth with it. But at the, at the very end kind of thing, Paul is saying like, Jesus is above all of these things. He's the one who's actually, who gives the power for this. And uh, it doesn't come from any of these other, these other gods are from these people. Like you said, with the gifts, it's like for him, everything is Jesus Christ. Yeah. I'm, I'm really excited. Uh, uh, like this is exactly the kind of skill that I wish um, more people brought to Bible reading is like you see these themes immediately listed in the beginning of the chapter. I bet you will see these themes repeated at the very end of the letter to the Ephesians, but also you're going to see them listed at the end of chapter one that it starts off like the name that is above all names, the Lord Jesus Christ, the God and father of all. And then on the very end of chapter one, it's like, remember, Jesus Christ uh, was raised from the dead and seated at the right hand in the heavenly places far above all rulers and authorities and powers and dominions above every name that is named, not only in this age, but the age to come. Like suddenly this document becomes dangerous. I wouldn't want to be walking through Roman streets with this letter and be stopped by a Roman guard and have them be like, what are you carrying? Because it becomes almost like a political manifesto. That's like revolutionary that who is this king who claims to be the name above all names and have dominion and power over our father, the Caesar of Rome? It's like, this is charged language that you don't get the gifts because the, the, like, I think in our context, sometimes we think that like my life would be better if the political party I like were in power and I would be blessed. Like it would help the economy or it would help me in my job. Like I work in the public sector, so I need this political party to secure my pension. And we do the same thing. Like it's easy to read the text and think, oh, what, a, what an uncivilized way to, to kind of have king worship. But right now, I don't remember a time in my lifetime when we were more politically charged and polarized than we are right now, thinking that if my person was in power, my life would be better. And here Paul is saying, no, the source of all blessings, all security, the source of belonging and love and uh, community is Jesus and nothing else. Uh, The rest is fleeting and the rest is um, fake and lacks depth and sincerity. And there's a lot here. We could probably set up camp for like two years in this text and continue to learn and be convicted and challenged. What do you think, Dallas, of this um, part in verse four, where he says, um, just as he chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. And then, so, so he says, just as he chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless before him in love, he destined us for adoption as his children through Jesus. Um, this language of like, predestination or or being destined this is a a very heavy theological concept do you have any thoughts i think it can be set up to be that like okay well if this text if first if ephesians 1 verse 4 is true 
that means we have no no say in the matter. God just chooses whether or not we become a Christian. Like that's where mm-hmm. it kind of gets planted. But I think I think you can, like he says, just as he chose us in Christ, um, he destined us for adoption. He doesn't like single anybody out. So it seems more to me like Paul is saying, God chose or God knew the way the world was going to go before he created it. And all the sin and all the downfall of humanity and everything that we read of in the biblical text from Genesis to Revelation, God foreknew how that was going to go. And so he sees his people and he knew that he was going to choose Israel and that Israel was going to expand throughout all the world and spread the name of Jesus Christ. And that Jesus was Lord over all these things. So in my mind, it's that he chose his people kind of in an overall general sense, almost not like specifically, oh, God chose you, Nikayla, and like, that's it. But those are my thoughts. What do you think? Yeah, I think it's good to to, to note that the like, it's always these plural pronouns. Um, whenever in English it says you in the Bible, it's, it's a plural you, like you, these people, God chose you, he predestined you. Um, and I think in history, like it's, it's always gone one of two ways. Either the belief is that God chose some people and not others, which is weird. Yeah. It's like what you would just create people and then like they're not chosen. Like they're just, there's no point. Like what, why that? But, but some people still hold that view passionately. I'm, some of them are members of my extended family. But then the other option or the other like common school of thought is that essentially God, in God's dream, <laughs> he chose all people. Like God created all of us for this. God set it up so that all people could be a part of it and could be included, but not all people respond to the call. Not people RSVP yes to the invite. So it's like I invited everybody to come. Only 25 people showed up. But essentially I had predestined all. Like, like So there, those are kind of the two main schools of thought about predestination. Like did God choose some and they had no choice in the matter and didn't choose others and they had no choice in the matter or did God choose send out a call to all and give all of us a capacity to respond and then we had free will to to say yes or no uh is, is kind of part of it but I wanted to just like as you're saying that I just wanted to jump in on because in verse five too he, like he goes on he destined us for adoption as his children through Jesus Christ according to the good pleasure of his will to the praise of his glorious grace that he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. So my mind goes with that, like in this concept of choosing people. Well, it doesn't seem like it would be to God's good pleasure to choose some people and then say to however many billions of people throughout the history of the universe, okay, you, it makes me, it gives me good pleasure to not choose you people, but these other people. So it seems like, again, like it's going back to that whole like gift thing. Like this is a good gift from God, that it pleases him to be able to freely give this to us through Jesus Christ. Yeah. And what I love about that is it goes back to kind of what you intro this episode with, where you brought up like Nazi Germany as an example, because if you get a powerful group of people um, who have like a military and uh, a lot of wealth and like a lot of uh, say in like the global market, and they believe that they've been chosen by God, they become like like that language can spin into some really dark places like a chosen race right like it can be used for like white supremacy of like we are god's chosen ones and all those other people have not been chosen but they exist to help us as free labor 
uh, like, like, like you can get that language when this is interpreted by people um, who are already in a seat of power. And yet what I think and hope that, that something Paul's doing here, one of my favorite verses, actually my husband, David, it's, I think it's David's favorite verse in the whole Bible. I'm going to have to get him to listen to this episode now is in Luke chapter 12. Um, Jesus says to his disciples, fear not little flock. It is your father's great pleasure to give you the kingdom. And in Luke 12, 34, that's so profound because like little flock is not this like honorable, like fear not sons of the most high God. It's fear not little flock, like vulnerable, tiny, powerless group. It looks like the whole world's against you. You have no special pass into the club of the powerful. And yet, little flock, it is the father's great pleasure to give you the kingdom. And so it starts out speaking to people who've already been excluded from the club, from the place of power. And he's saying, ah, you who have never been an insider, fear not. It is God's great pleasure to give you the kingdom. And and in the other place that comes to mind where this language of like God's pleasure is when Jesus is baptized, which is also sonship language, if you think of it, Jesus is baptized and the voice from heaven says, this is my son in whom I am well pleased right? Like my, I have much pleasure from this son. And this is a huge part of Paul's theology. He's like the same pleasure that God the Father sees when he looks at Jesus, a member of the Godhead. When he looks at you, he sees Jesus. That's what like in Galatians, like you are clothed in Christ. It is God's great pleasure to have you um, adopted into his family or, or, or for you to be sit, seated at the table. Um, the same pleasure it brought him uh, to see Jesus, the same pleasure it brought him to give his kingdom to this little vulnerable flock of misfits and outsiders. Here to the Ephesians, he's saying it's God's great pleasure um, to, to adopt you as his children perfectly aligned with the good pleasure of his will. And so that's a radical theological concept. Like you are not this like scum of the world, this sinful, wretched worm. And if it weren't for Jesus stepping in and, you know, absorbing the wrath of God on your behalf and taking a beating for you, it's that God's like, when I like you're adopted into sonship. And and part of me, I think that language of sonship, if I could just like say for a quick moment, you know, sometimes I would be kind of annoyed because the NRSV usually does a good job at like not just saying brothers, but saying brothers and sisters. So there was probably a time in my life where I would have been annoyed by this. Like, why don't they say we were adopted into like sonship and daughtership or um, adoption just as siblings or, or something? But actually, it's like, no, if I was in the Roman Empire, I would absolutely want to be adopted as a son. Like daughters get married off at 12 years old. Daughters don't get any share of the inheritance. Daughters don't uh, have any say in what happens to the family like business or legacy. And to be like, no, I'm going to adopt you in as a son, which means you get the same vote as your brother, is like immediately an access to privilege that as a woman I never, ever, ever would have had. So it's not that God's like, I love you because you're a beautiful woman. You're a princess. Like that does not, like people say that all the time. You're a daughter of the king. You're a princess. I'm like, do you know anything about monarchies? Princesses are not having a great time. But if it's like, no, you're a son. I'm a son. I'm a son. Like in God's eyes, not like, like I don't think God upholds those kind of like gender roles, but 
I'm adopted in as a son. So you're not allowed to look at me, see my gender, and then immediately treat me accordingly. When you look at me, you see a son of God. It, it becomes pretty, pretty, I don't know. Some people who are like feminist might have a problem with that. And I would love to dialogue about that. But I love that Paul's looking at this community that could be like in some of Paul's churches, majority women or like um, slaves and, and freed slaves and, and foreigners and Gentiles. And to be like, you are a son of the, of the, of God. It's a huge promotion. <laughs> well, and it's interesting too, that like Paul never uses language for himself. That's like all high and mighty. I mean, like he calls himself an apostle, apostle at the beginning, but that's like, that's a, a big calling, but it's not like he builds himself up. Like he, Paul was, yeah, he was kind of like rejected by his own lineage, but Paul was Jewish. Like he had a significant role just by blood, but in here he, he doesn't take any of that up. In fact, he kind of rejects it. He's like, no, I like I'm a slave. I'm a prisoner. So he's putting himself kind of in line with like the bottom of the barrel in terms of like societal order. And then is going, but everybody, including us is able to be, because of just the grace and the goodness of God, we become sons of God. Yeah, yeah. I think it's it's so radical because even in like the Roman Empire, there would be sons of the Caesar, which would be Roman citizens, and then the people who were slaves uh, or like foreigners who were still kind of participating – I don't think they would be given that title of, of son of the Caesar. That That's reserved for Roman citizens. And Paul is inviting that, like, or, or Paul is showing us that God invites, that there isn't like this hierarchy of like firstborn sons and youngest sons or like able-bodied sons and disabled sons. There's like, no, no, no. The ground is level. There's no seat of honor at the table and seat of dishonor at the table. It's like there's a, there's a, a seat for everyone and, and enough food, enough grace. I love the, these very superlative language in this text, like freely lavished, um, lavished the riches of his grace upon us. Like the language is just um, full of the sense of abundance. Like there's so much blessing. God is freely bestowing the riches of his grace that he lavished on us. It's really intense language. And I'm imagining myself sitting in a prison cell. I'd probably feel like God's barely giving me crumbs. And yet Paul's experience is that he is his cup is overflowing. He is being so filled up with so many blessings. He's like, do you know how rich we are? You're sitting in a jail cell, Paul. I am the richest man alive. Oh, like I would love to have a my imagination shaped around that a bit more. These days I've been very negative and cynical and felt a lot of self-pity. So it's a powerful text. One thing that I have underlined here in my text that I really loved is uh, in verse four, it says, um, just as he chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless before him, pause. I feel like the way I grew up, I believe I would have believed that the sentence stopped there. Like God chose me to be holy and blameless. Like that to me would have been like a text used for like encouraging like teenagers to stay pure, like be holy and blameless before God. He chose you to be holy and blameless, but the sentence doesn't end there. He says, um, he chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless before him in love. Like, like, like when I've heard people be like, Nikayla, you need to be holy and blameless. That's about my own individual morality and like my own individual decisions about like being righteous and being good and being pure. 
But love is not an individual thing. Love assumes community and connection and reciprocity. So it's like be holy in love, be blameless in love. It's about your place in the community, in the family, that families ought to love one another and be holy in love, not be holy and stand up and be like, I didn't do anything wrong today. It's that I gave and received the love of God in this place, in this community. I was holy in love, blameless in love. What? It blows my mind. It's interesting that you pull that out because now I'm just going to nerd out about language a little bit because I, when I looked into the Greek and parts of it, like the Greek word for love here is agape. Wow. And um, the, the noun or verb form of agape, love, occurs more than twice as many times per thousand words of text in Ephesians than in all other Pauline letters. So he like, like a strong emphasis on love throughout this entire letter. It's like, it's not very many times, but it's twice as many as any of his other letters. And I won't go too nerdy with it, but it's always, it's used to refer to love, um, like God's love for humans but it's also used for uh, to to refer to Christ's love, to walk in love as Christ loved us, and then later on, there's also like husband to love his wife as Christ loved the church. But then there's also like a number of times where it's referred to believers' love for one another. Mm-hmm. So like Christian to Christian love, and then finally there's one reference of our love for Christ. But like the entire letter has so much to do with love for one another. And for God and his love for us. Yeah, I'm already so excited. Like, I just want to only talk about love now. But because isn't it in Ephesians um, where there's that passage that talks about, like, I pray that you would have the wisdom to know how wide and how high and how deep is the love of God, like the depth and the width and the height. Like, it is like unimaginable. It's unfathomable, the love of God, not the wrath of God, (laughs) the love of God and the Christian community, like the community shaped by the love of Christ would be known by its love, not by its cool programs, not by its fancy preaching or very well-produced podcasts, Um, its beautiful sanctuary or its uh, huge band, but known by its love. Like, I think we could, as a church, like like Dallas, like you and I this fall, we're trying to kind of relaunch um, space to gather after COVID. And it could be like, what should we invest in? Like, we need a fancier show. We need a better performance to draw people back together. But Paul's like, no, slow your roll. That's That might have people come for a while, but there's going to be another church in Calgary that does it better, no matter what. And... Yet, if you come and you see love and you see people who are all different and who don't agree on stuff and who have hurt each other and betrayed each other and gossiped about each other and slandered and like they've been through it all. They've they've fought for their place in this community and they've like like I think when when you experience a community that has this deep, faithful love that's not like, yay, everything is awesome, but oh no, it's very, very hard to love you. And yet I am committed through thick and thin. I will love you for better, for worse, richer or poorer. Like that love, I, I think people would sell everything to find that pearl of great price. Like that's the kingdom of heaven in your midst is like there's a sense of belonging in this community, um, even if it's not polished, but a sense of belonging. Dallas, wasn't it you that told me about that Henry Nouwen article? Was Maybe which Henry now an article. 
oh no, it was Glendon. I wonder if Glendon listened to this. Um, he said he read this Henry Nouwen article where Henry Nouwen said um, that the three like steps of discipleship, that might not have been the language, but is first solitude and then community and then mission. Mm-hmm. And a lot of churches try to go from like solitude to mission or just straight to mission. Like what's the mission? What's the plan? What's the program? Like we're entrepreneurs with a business plan, a business model, it's mission. Yeah. But in the way of Jesus and, and certainly the way of Jesus that Paul draws our attention to is that community comes before mission. And like the mission that we have in this neighborhood is flows out of the community and our love for one another and our commitment to each other as a community is, is, is the fount like, like is where it flows out of that. I think as a millennial, that's like grown up in a world where you're always supposed to be like starting a new thing. And I don't know this reminder that a community that loves each other is where, is where we start because we've been informed by the, the love of Jesus and, and, and we've been swept up into that love. It's huge. Um, one thing that just because we're talking about it that I want to mention, and it is at the end of chapter one, so we're kind of skipping around a bit, but one thing that blows my mind is in verse 21 where it says, um, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion above every name that is named. I was just reminded I'm talking to some LTDs at Gull Lake this week that even in the Bible, there's a lot to be said for like who gets a name and who doesn't. Like in the Gospels, it could be like, then a a rich young ruler came to Jesus. It's like, tell us his name. I bet you anything, everybody knew all of the rich young rulers. Was it Caesar? Was it Herod? Was it Pilate? Who came? His name doesn't matter. But I want to know who the rich young ruler was. I'm not giving you his name. But he does name like Simon the leper. Jairus and his daughter, uh, like he gives names to people, which always, and Awakeners know this about me, Dallas, you may not, like the story that I tell probably as often as any other story, if not more, is the one in Exodus chapter one, where like the Pharaoh in the book of Exodus is never given a name ever, which for a while historians were like, that's evidence that this story is not historically accurate. It's not meant to be factual. The Pharaoh's never given a name. But in chapter one, the Hebrew midwives are named Shifra, Shifra and Pua. And it's like, and the the word Exodus is not the name of the book. It's not like the Hebrew name. It's the Greek or Latin name. The name of the book of Exodus is the book of names. Because also in the book of Exodus um, is the place where God reveals his name to the people. And the people who were enslaved to the Egyptians would know the names of all the Egyptian gods. But even Moses doesn't know the name of Yahweh. He says, what will I tell them your name is? God is an unnamed God, nameless. In, in the world of gods, no one knows this God. He is unnamed. He is a lowly, he has no celebrity status. He introduces his name. And then what he does, uh, uh, Moses says, well, what if I go to Pharaoh? And Pharaoh's like, I've never heard of that God. And that's what happens. That's exactly what happens. I think it's Exodus 5. The Pharaoh's like, I don't know this God. Why should I listen? The people mustn't have enough work. They're getting these crazy ideas, double their workload. But at the end of the book of Exodus, God has rendered Pharaoh's name irrelevant and given a name to those who had been unnamed by Pharaoh. Like you, you, you can't enslave people who you know and care about. And the whole reversal is who does God name and who does God not name? And so here he have Jesus sits in authority over every name that is named, which is a way of saying Though the church might be made up of a bunch of kind of awkward weirdos who aren't known by many people, 
the church is the temple of the living God. And though we might not be named, God doesn't work according to those rules of like honor and fame. I know that that verse there, every name that is named is, I bet you it wasn't until long after Jesus died and rose from the dead and ascended that any Roman citizen really even knew his name. I don't know. There's something about whose name do you know? I'm like, I know the name of all these celebrities, but I don't know the name of the person that made the clothing I'm wearing. But God does. And that's where his kingdom is. So go there. When you plant a church, go to those who don't have a name uh, in the eyes of the empire, you know. Okay, I didn't mean to preach a small sermon. I, I'm very sorry. No, go off. That was amazing. Move on. Moving on. I, I sense that in our modern context, we don't fathom just how new and provocative some of these ideas are in Paul's day. I think of Paul uh, from verse 15 on. He's he's like in a prison cell, and like these are not the cool kids <laughs> that he's planted a church with, right? These aren't the cool kids. Um, and yet Paul says, um, I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints. And for this reason, I do not cease to give thanks for you. Um, and I wonder how often pastors have like wished different certain other people came to their church or, or participated in the church community or like the way we, we do that. Or, I'm like, man, when was the last time I sat down and just gave thanks for every single member of, of this community and like prayed without ceasing just this prayer of Thanksgiving. Like, thank you so much. Like I think in COVID and like every pastor relates to this, you would like host a a service. Um, and the point of the service is not to like pump my ego or like make me feel like I'm a good preacher or something. The point of the service is like a place to hear the word of God, um, to connect like fellowship of the saints, uh, to participate in communion and that that performance that that script of abundance and belonging, and, and yet there'd be like, oh, six people are on Zoom today. I am a failure. <laughs> I'm so angry at the 45 people who aren't here that I think should be here. They're probably at another church. Like all these kind of negative thoughts that don't yield good fruit in the life of anything, and yet like how often was I able to sit and just be like unceasingly grateful for the people that are engaged or are like like faithfully finding meaning in that space of belonging just that, that Paul's like I never stop thanking God for you and yeah that, I don't know that attitude I just find really convicting and profound and I think of all the, the churches and all the spaces that had rejected Paul Paul gets kicked out of like every town. Um, he's in jail. He's just rejected constantly. Like like if you compare the amount of people who accept him and the people who reject him, uh, the, the numbers are not in his favor. And yet for those who have heard the message that he's brought, um, he just, it's, it almost sounds like he just sits there weeping in joy. And uh, I, I'm not, uh, yeah, I feel quite convicted and, and humbled by that attitude. Yeah, I, like I think that, I think especially at the beginning, we kind of went through this stage of, oh my goodness, there's nobody around. I can't see people. And we missed that gathering of people. And you don't realize, like maybe even for Paul here, who's sitting in a prison cell and he is not actually with his people. Maybe there's, yeah, like that piece of him that's, I give thanks for you because I know that we are all one, but like almost that I miss you. Mm. Like I want, I desire to be with the people. And in a sense I am, but it's not like the fullness of 
gathering together in a room or something or just like being in community together and i think i think that's something that i could have related to was hmm. not being like we had our first church service this past weekend like all being in a room that was so weird mm-hmm. and so yeah i just think you're right like paul gets at this just this extreme gratitude for mm-hmm. the community the people that i think if we remember in the beginning we missed so dearly and now we get to have it again mm-hmm. it's kind of blowing my mind right now i had never ever thought about that comparison of paul is in isolation he's in prison like probably no no one's coming to visit him he's not getting many letters like he's he he it would be so easy to feel forgotten and he's not he's not even like oh i'm so sorry i feel so guilty that i'm stuck in jail and i should be over there helping you and connecting with you and doing these things he's like the reality is i'm in jail um but I'm sitting here praying for you like crazy and I'm writing you letters and I'm loving you. And I know that like, even without me, even if I get executed, even if I never get to see you again, I still thank God for you because I know that you, you are a home for the living God and that God is with you. And my only prayer is that you have the wisdom to know God's love and a wisdom to understand the glorious riches of his grace. And it's not at all about me. I'm just writing you this letter of like encouragement and guidance but I know that even if I never get out of this prison cell and I never see you again, that God is the one who animates his church and keeps his church alive. It's not me. And like how badly would he long to just go and be and eat a meal with, with his friends again and see these people again. And like all of us spent a year and a half in COVID in a way, it's like it felt like a prison cell some days. Uh, obviously nothing like an ancient Roman prison cell, but that longing to be together. And instead of some of the negative thoughts that I know came in my head, I I love that Paul is just like, I just pray that wherever you are, whatever you're doing, that you would have your heart enlightened, he says in verse 18, the eyes of your heart enlightened, that you would know the hope to which God has called you, that you would know the riches of his glorious inheritance, um, and that you would know the immeasurable greatness of his power, um, according to the working of his great power. And he's just like, well, wherever my friends are, I hope they know how much God loves them, and the hope that they have I feel like I'm reading this for the first time and I just should like delete this podcast. <laughs> just this sense of like, wow, I, I've read this a few times um, this week and even a few times today. And yet your, your comparison of Paul being in jail to being in COVID isolation as a, as a pastor, even who like can't see his community um, or, or a missionary who can't go visit the community that he established just would be so lonely. And yet Paul's joy and hope and optimism is so strong in this letter. is unity and that's everything and that that would be my heart i think for awaken right now um i'll never forget a few months ago a conversation with an awakener in their backyard and they were kind of sharing like you know i feel really convicted and like i probably shouldn't come back to awaken because what covid taught me was that like i never really went to church for the sermons and the worship i kind of went to see all my friends and so that my kids could play with all of their friends and now i feel like i shouldn't go back because i maybe I'm not a Christian. And they were kind of like beating themselves up a bit. Like I never really went to church during COVID because I don't want to just go and 
listen to some songs and a reading of the psalm and a sermon. Um, so like if the church is able to gather again after COVID, I just think, I guess I'm probably not a Christian. And I remember, and maybe people, some pastors would disagree with my answer, but I was like, you coming each week to see your friends and acknowledging that not everybody there is your friend. There's also people there who maybe are difficult to love. And you acknowledging that this is the community that you want to raise your children in. That in and of itself is an act of worship. It's not the whole thing. But do not let that keep you from the community. The invitation into community. The fact that every Sunday you would come because that was a place you felt you saw people whose eyes lit up when they saw you. And you felt a sense of belonging. And that is what drew you. Um, that's a good enough reason to come. And that's a good enough reason to bring your kids and and, and to see that. And (laughs) like, it was just like, God is, it's God's great pleasure for you to be there and taste. It's a foretaste of the kingdom. You come. And if you sit in the nursery with your baby and you're excited to see the other parents with babies and you didn't even hear the sermon, I'm so grateful and I don't think your place in this community is any less than the one sitting there taking sermon notes in the first row. You know, I don't know if we have anybody like that at Awaken, but oh yeah, no, it's Dallas. Dallas yeah. is that person now. That's that's amazing. But the community and the place of belonging in the family of God, in the household of God, is um, is a, a place of worship, and it, it's a place that. But, you know, Paul is so grateful, and, and Paul says that God is so grateful um, for people to be brought into that, and and that's enough. And I think there's there's grace and space for people to say, I don't know if I believe this stuff, or or, or I don't necessarily come because of this stuff, but I'm really grateful to have a seat at this table. The door's wide open. You're an important part of it. So Dallas, any concluding thoughts? I mean, we're off to a great start with chapter one already, and I'm excited for the rest of it because it's already just setting us up so well for what it means to be the church and to love one another and and the hope we have in christ like this like you said before this just makes us excited for what is to come and i think that's a that is a really good thing yeah beautiful i think it would be appropriate as a benediction to read um ephesians chapter 1 verse uh 17 to 19 which says, I pray that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation as you come to know him, so that with the eyes of your heart enlightened, you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance among the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power for us who believe according to the working of his great power. Amen. Amen.